0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And what's brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include. Playing Genius PCs, Disappearing Handball Players, Eldritch Secrets of the Macrib, and The Greek War of Independence. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything.
1: Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages.
0: But you know young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean
1: perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties.
0: Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with
1: foes, like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons.
0: They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super
1: simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's.
0: And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and
1: love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure.
0: A soul- play graphic novel adventure within
1: moments of opening it kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game
0: run magical kitties save the day for kids as young as six years old
1: and for everyone else who loves kitties
0: a great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM
1: if you've been looking for a way to introduce your
0: friends and family to role-playing games magical kitties save the day is the perfect game to do it do you mean perfect I also do not Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut and uh once we enter the gaming hut we notice that our character sheet robin it's it's got a lot of math on it i think i I, if that's math maybe it's symbolic logic i don't know i can't even read my own character sheet robin what do i do how do i play how do you play how do we play all of us a player character who is smarter than you are that is an ongoing challenge uh even the question of Is that a thing has been a a question raised since the earliest days of dungeoning and dragoning PCs are only smarter than me in that they can cast magic. And in all other ways, they're not smarter than me, but in some cases your PC is a, a Charlie Varick type. Who's got all the angles and you have only some of the angles. How do you do that, Robin? What do we do? How do we deal with it? And is it even a problem as uh, some, uh, old school DMs would even reject the premise. Well,
0: what would their argument be for rejecting the premise?
1: Well, their argument is that Dungeons and Dragons is fundamentally a game about resolving challenges. And those challenges can be resolved tactically by stabbing, or they can be resolved by outthinking the problem. And so if you see a puzzle, you are expected to solve it with your human brain, not by rolling int to solve it. If you're answering a riddle, you answer it with your human brain, not roll uh wisdom to guess the riddle based on body language or whatever. Right.
0: So their argument is that int and wisdom are useless statistics. It should be removed from D D. That they the the only
1: thing that they measure is spellcasting capacity for wizards and clerics, respectively, yes. Right.
0: But if we look at fiction, which the old school argument doesn't want to do they just want to say this is a a game with limitations and any resemblance to fiction is purely coincidental well i see a number of (laughs) resemblances to fiction and in fiction the charlie barrett character the one who has all the angles is a popular trope certainly in superhero genre if you're going to take out super geniuses what percentage of comic book characters does that eliminate
1: yeah right (laughs)
0: including batman you can't, you can't have Batman if you're going to follow those rules. So if we look at the fictional sources, how does that work? Well, it tends to be that the plot is written around that. And so if you want to have a game with a mastermind PC, and you are that PC, uh, I'm going to submit that you're going to need the same cooperation from the GM that the protagonist in fiction has from the author. Right. And that. Raises this question of do you want to do that and what are the limitations and i think you're right to suggest that even there are plenty of gms who are not wouldn't consider themselves old school who are very reluctant to give information and clues uh to the players in general and become super resistant with the idea of well you know that the way a mastermind would typically work is first of all if you've actually if they have actual mastermind class intelligence if that's their thing or just their shtick They shouldn't even have to roll, right, after a certain point. If your whole thing is you're Batman or Charlie Barrack, that's your whole deal. And so the way you would deal with that is you would need some level of cooperation from uh, the GM in order to make that happen. And I would submit that the, you know, and almost no rule sets do this, but I would say that the answer is either you get to say to the GM a number of times uh, over the course of uh, an adventure, uh, perhaps once per adventure, you just say, well, tell me what you think the default plan is that we should have. And then they, you tell them. <laughs> yeah. And the advantage of that, I guess, would be you would also say, well, well, Batman, what do we do? Batman asks the GM. Batman tells the players, there you go. There's the 45 minutes of wrangling over the ideal plan taken out. Because that doesn't ruin every single plot to have the best plan, does it?
1: Not necessarily, although it does in many ways short circuit interplayer cooperation, And that is a a genuine problem. If one character's got a special relationship with the GM, either a rules-based one, like in this case, or they're the GM's uh, boyfriend in another case, that can cause resentment. And so even if you've agreed we
0: wanted to play with Batman... Well, well, at least being Masterman costs points in the build system. Yeah, right,
1: yes. (laughs) In many cases, being the GM's boyfriend also costs points, just metaphysical ones. But, you know, you may say, oh, yeah, we don't mind playing with Batman... But like actual characters in comic books, dealing with Batman is no walk in the park either. And so you're like, well, all right, well, let's let's let Batman freaking solve it. He's Batman. And then you get a lot of, you know, folded arms and resentment as opposed to genuine interaction with the problem. And even if it's done in good part, which it is, as I say, not always done, there is going to be the temptation. Well, we're just going to keep Batman in our hip pocket. And then when something looks really tough, out comes the automatic answer. And Batman, what do you think we should do about this horrible death trap? And Batman, you know, asks the GM, and the GM says, oh, well, uh, because you're Batman, you noticed that there was a, a stalactite hanging down over the thing uh, that seems a little delicate, and you can knock it loose with your Batarang, and that'll, you know, go right through the, the trap's mechanism, and you'll all escape just fine. And in many ways, that will also kind of ruin the GM's fun because part of the fun of the game is actually resolving challenges. And in many cases, the micro tactical challenge or even the, you know, social challenge of how do I get to the mob boss or how do I get out of this dungeon room? That's kind of the core activity of play. And if you short circuited it by asking, you know, Batman or, uh, you know, um, Charlie Varick or whoever, then you've done yourself out of some play and a lot of groups are not prepared to play on the level that knowing how to get out of one challenge per session even sets you up for. And they don't want to do that and they aren't prepared to do it because automatic victory brings automatic consequences as well, just like regular victory.
0: Right. So this brings us to the second option, which is post facto Batmanning. And that is where after You get a great role or something happens that while things are happening, the rule system has already determined that you've scored a critical. And at that point, you, the mastermind character, can explain it in terms of your having already planned this. So it's like, well, yeah, of course, I scouted this cavern when the rest of you were ordering pizza, I was already in this cavern yesterday. <laughs> I was studying the blade. <laughs> I've studied and I, I carefully scored this stalactite so it would be available for this. And uh, here's the, you know, prediction of all the probabilities of when this stalactite would be needed. And I know you guys have bummed you out when I just tell you this stalactite. And you know, part of being a mastermind is uh, theatricality. So I'm telling you now, now that I've used the. Uh, stalactite type to uh, masterful and, so that in that instance you have to do a bit of back explaining, but everybody feels that whole thing because when in fact, if you look at fiction with a master planner in it, it doesn't go like master planner describes master plan, everyone agrees to it, executes it, and it goes perfectly end of story
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, <laughs> there's always a twist and expectation that whenever you see a planning session in detail in a film, that plan's going to go awry. Mm-hmm. And when you see a plan that is executed brilliantly, it's done Oceans 11, uh, the newer Oceans 11 style, where they give you the details of how uh, it looked like it was going to go. And then you you see part of the planning, but you don't really see what's going on until there are post-facto explanations of how they actually succeeded when it looked like they had failed. And I think that's the thing that gets around that concern where you feel it's cheating to have this one ability that allows you to solve problems, unlike all of your other problem solving abilities, which are somehow different.
1: Mm -hmm. There is a couple of variants on that method. There's one that I'm currently actually using in my own supers game, because I have characters that have various types of super intelligence or super awareness. And if they roll well, then they get a lot of information. It's not the sort of, you know, Standard minimal amount you need to move through the story. It's not the core clue, as it were. You've basically, you've automatically spent. And so you get lots of possibilities. And I will deliberately say to the super spy, I'll say, here are the things that you think can make happen. And then if it's just a matter of he says, okay, I want to do that. I want to get close to the, you know, boss of the binjue, then it's like, oh, all right, you've made this one role to get the information that will assume that's your role to get close. You're now at the spot you need to be. And because all the characters are doing things together, that character's ability to sort of, you know, move down the board rapidly becomes one ability in their arsenal. And it doesn't feel like it's unearned because he paid the points, as you say, for that ability and he rolled well. And so rolling well is, you know, you, you get over rewarded in a supers game for rolling well, or you should, because it's a supers game. So, That methodology, I can say, has worked, but it is a little work on the GM to suddenly have in your hip pocket a brilliant plan to go along with every result of over 12 on the dice. You know, many GMs are capable of doing that. Other GMs might find that a bit of a stress. Uh, The other possibility is that you have an ability to, at any point, Make your roll, and it might be for, you know, Danny Ocean or whatever your quality is, to say, all right, I know this looks bad, but roll for Ace in the Hole that I've pre-planned. And at that level, you're still rolling, and whether you scored out the stalactite or bought off the bruiser, that is something that you can suggest – and ideally, you suggested not the GM, but you and the GM need to work together as with all mastermind characters, uh, to figure out what brilliant thing you did to make this not as bad a situation as it is without entirely defanging the crisis, right? Unless it's, right. you know, right before you're about to break for the day, then go ahead, defang the crisis. You know, that, that, that works just fine. Right.
0: Uh, a midway solution for, GMs who allow players to split up and have little solo side missions that contribute to the main mission, which overall is a technique I highly recommend, is that you do your Batmanning on a solo run. So that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like, well, this plan can't possibly work unless we get the electronic reverser. And then you describe the brilliant thing you do to get the electronic reverser and make whatever super genius role you need to see if that works or some sort of opposing super genius has prevented you from getting it so that you are not a telling everybody else what to do to follow your genius plan but you still get to feel like you did uh, something that you got something out of your genius points Mm -hmm. and of course everybody else should have the same option to go off and do little side contributions where they get spotlighted for whatever their thing is so the person who's put all their points in intimidate gets to, you know, intimidate the map out of somebody, and the person who has, you know, put everything in fire powers, you know, they get a a fire to absorb, and uh, uh, you can then use that ability, and so people get their little defining spotlight moments without stealing thunder from each other.
1: Right. And again, this takes, uh, on the GM's part, and I guess, you know, we've talked a little bit about, from the PC's perspective and, and doing this mechanically, but, I mean, the GM, as I've said, needs a lot of knowledge of their own scenario and of ways through it that they maybe hadn't thought of that simultaneously don't ruin the scenario for everyone else, but reward Batman. And then they need to be emotionally prepared to give up what they thought was going to be a really good challenge in the occasions, because, you know, even a a, a critical role, we've all been in this situation where you roll the natural 20 and kill the big boss and now the dungeon fight is boring because the ogre mage is dead and you're just cleaning up kobolds and it's like, well, whatever. I, I I can be doing this at home. And and that feels less satisfying. Again, you get a possible situation, and it's worse as the GM because you're the only person who knew how great this challenge or this puzzle was going to be. Uh, and then, you know, a, a lucky roll has has bounced it out. So there's got to be a lot of prep, both emotional and uh informational, on the part of the GM to handle these questions. And I feel like players, you know, I think you and I have said this a million times, players and GMs should always be cooperating to tell the best possible story. But in these cases, especially, you are closer to treading on each other's corns than you are in some other kinds of player GM conflict. And so it's very important that everyone be prepared to to roll with it and the trouble is that if other player characters have not bought this build now we're back to the problem we originally indicated where you know all right i understand intellectually that he bought all the you know, all that skill with points but i still feel like i'm being sidelined and you can't always restrain your batmaning to a side mission as you say and at some point you know you'll say well all right how come he's only good when no one's watching him why why is he never smart when we're in the trap together
0: right to think you sort of deal with that is and this also covers the you know surprise critical that wipes out the boss monster is you describe that in a way where it's not anticlimactic but rather you take a couple steps back and show all the horrible things that were about to happen right so if you're you know fighting. The uh, giant mecha robot, and it's the whole Justice League except for Superman. It's like Green Arrow's arrows bounce off of him, and uh, he puts on a, a sonic uh, ray to nullify Black Canary's powers, and and then you know, and then Batman does the bank shot with the uh, stalactite, and so that you get to feel a little bit more of the disaster you averted by getting that critical role, and that could be just as well a critical role from. Green Arrow's archery, or Black Canary's sonic ability, but that you take a little bit of creative license and just exactly spell out to everybody what they avoided by, you know, short-circuiting whatever the problem was. And so, rather than an anticlimax, we go, "Oh, okay, you won. Let's pack up early." You get a sense of. You know, just how incredibly great this critical was and and what it did for you.
1: And you can invite the other players to narrate and say, all right, we just saw that critical. We know what's going to happen. Narrate what you did in the fight, either to set it up, set up Batman's ability to save the day or narrate your own despair. at Oh, this is too bad. We're all going to die and let the players do that, as opposed to sit and listen to you, the GM, uh, tell Green Arrow how his arrows bounced off pointlessly. I mean, get get Green Arrow to tell you. that. That's more fun, I think, for everybody.
0: Well, uh, Ken, like super geniuses, we solve not only the problem of playing a mastermind, but the problem of the anticlimactic critical. And uh, having solved two problems with one bank shot off his galactite, it's time for us to head into another hut.
1: Dracula is not a novel.
0: We know this. It's the
1: after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To
0: recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all
1: this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries.
0: For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons or bibliomancy.
1: Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports.
0: If only someone could gather up all that material that you and gareth wrote after the fact someone has you made gar do it didn't you we've
1: assembled gar has assembled the cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a
0: 50-page pdf Available free with a special offer from the Pell store.
1: Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook Standalone.
0: Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print.
1: Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get
0: 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And
1: don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrain store bookshelves without further expenditure.
0: Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All
1: others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings.
0: The stove pipe hats, the wood burning ovens and the horse and buggy tell us we're once again in the good old history hut where we're going to go way back in time to a story from 2003-2004 because uh, beloved patron backer Drew wants to know about the 2004 case of the disappearing Sri Lankan handball team and uh, Ken, I believe you've looked a bit into this I have. and found I think at least the veil out that would explain what the quotidian answer is for what happened before right. we Dig in and find the uh, Ken and Robin answer. The
1: secret answer. Well, first of all, I'm going to, you know, answer the objections right up top. If you're smart, if you're Batman, you've noticed the words handball team and you're saying handball's not a team sport. That's the thing. There never was a handball team. It's some sort of a trick. And I'm here to inform you with a heavy heart that in Europe, they play handball as a team sport. And it's basically. <laughs> Isn't that just like Europe? It's basically hand soccer. And it's. You know you you know how great soccer is when you're running around. Well, you can't run around in handball because you you can't punch the ball that far. So good job, Europe. Uh, anyway, this is a thing called team handball or field handball or European handball or stupid handball. But anyway, it's a sport. Let's say, and I want to just sort of set this up in some context. In August of 1993, the Commonwealth Wrestling Championships were held in Victoria, British Columbia. And 11 wrestlers came from Sri Lanka to British Columbia. And one of them came back home in 2014 in the Asian games in South Korea, uh, out of an 80 person Sri Lankan team, two athletes also disappeared. And in 2021 in September, they had another world wrestling championship. They hadn't learned in Norway and Sri Lankan wrestler disappeared from that. The latest of 44 wrestlers alone to disappear in this way. And the sports community does not call this defecting because Sri Lanka is, albeit somewhat imperfect, democracy. They call it decamping, which is a fun name for just books out of the stupid competition that goes into something else. So, this is the story of the greatest decampment of all, or that's what they say. Uh, So, in 2003, a group called the Asian German Sports Exchange Program gets a call from the Sri Lankan national handball team about setting up an exhibition match in Germany and this is the kind of calls they got all the time their whole mission is to go around various Asian countries play European sports get people who have never played pointless stupid European sports to play them as a means of spreading sport awareness and building international community and it's i guess it's no dumber than most international community ideas so the uh Sri Lankans uh hire a handball coach a guy named Athula Wijanayaka to teach a bunch of Sri Lankans handball and they uh find a team no doubt you know, there's a scruffy recruiting montage and the Germans come they the Germans come and they play in Sri Lanka and they win 36 to 2 and the Germans are all good sports about it. They say, well, we weren't very good when we were pretending field handball was a thing back in 1900. I'm sure you'll get better. Come on to Germany in 2004, and we'll have ourselves a tournament, a big 10-round uh, tournament. And the Sri Lankan 23-man team all says, oh, that'd be great. And they come to Germany in September. They go to a little town called Wittislingen. They play their first game, and they just get plowed. They are, if anything, worse than they were in the opener. And everyone goes out and the Germans are like, hey, no hard feelings. It takes a while to build a sport that means nothing and is stupid compared to one American sport. Look at everything we've accomplished. And the Sri Lankans are like, this is great. Oh, and you say that these are free refills. And then they left a note in their hotel room on September 13th and vanished. And the note said, we have gone to France. Sorry about the handball. We like you very much. Love Sri Lankan handball team. Now, they cleverly wrote, we have gone to France as a blind, because it turns out most of them had family or friends in Italy, and those family and friends had set this all up as a scam to just convince the Germans to pay a bunch of Sri Lankans to come to Germany with valid entry passports, and then they snuck out and went to Italy, and they all got jobs, and uh, as they are vanishing, however, people are um, uh, saying, oh, it's... Uh, Tamil Tigers are smuggling terrorists into Germany and the, uh, accept the German uh, sports exchange program calls the Sri Lankan sports ministry says, your handball team has vanished, and the sports ministry says, we don't play handball. What are you talking about? <laughs> what a
0: handball team? We don't
1: have a handball team. Also, isn't handball a solo sport? You play against a wall in America, like a real country, and then AgCept gets mad. And then the, the sort of the capper on this, the ice cream Sunday, is that the German sports authority just bans AgCept from ever letting other foreign teams come into Germany because they're like, if this is an immigration scam instead of a sports foundation... Well, I guess well played, but second of all, no more of that. And the, uh, I don't know if this is a happy ending or a sad ending, but half of the 23 team members have all come back to Sri Lanka ever since. Um, they didn't like Italy or they made enough money that they seemed happy. The, and so they could come back and support their families in uh, Sri Lanka or, you know, their, their, a sister had a kid and they wanted to come see him. So it's sort of an anticlimactic ending, But apparently it's, you know, a lovely story for either 12 or 11 of the uh, handball team players who are still in Italy, happily making pizzas and driving Ubers and doing whatever else they do. Right.
0: So if we're going to turn this into a scenario, the last thing we want to do is uh, literally demonize low paperwork economic migration. No, that's, those
1: are literally the good guys in this story. I I don't want anyone to think but because I used the word scam, I was (laughs) using it. Uh, in a derogatory way. That's exactly. Fooling Germans about non existent sport is literally the best kind of scam, Robin. Right.
0: So, so we don't want to have a supernatural explanation that makes them the bad guys. Or
1: that makes it a way to smuggle demons instead of terrorists. That's right. no better, right? Yeah.
0: So, uh, if they're not the bad guys, logic tells us that they're, uh, the good guys. And so I'm going to posit that this was a, a deep cover, uh, possibly even with the cooperation of the, uh, German authorities who knew all well along and, you know, this whole, you know, fake outrage of, you know, banning AgCEP is sort of like, I'm shocked to discover that there's gambling in this casino, right? That mm-hmm. This is all uh, part of the cover for presumably uh, what is an operation by the, the uh, Sri Lankan State Intelligence Service, because what happens in 2003, just around the point in time where they're setting the this call, up. setting this up is in May there's the very severe psychotic storm Bob-01 makes its landfall in uh, Sri Lanka in May. It's a huge storm, displaces 800,000 people, and as we know from the annals of uh, the supernatural and horror, undoubtedly either awful things came ashore or the outer covering of things were swept and, and horrible things uh, were revealed, thereby giving the uh, Sri Lankans sort of a leg up in understanding and knowing about this threat. So if we then look at Italy, we think about storms. Prior to the tournament in 2004, in September 2003, a storm damages a power line from Switzerland into Italy, and it plunges all of Italy immediately into darkness. And one of the effects that this has is that it effectively cancels their Nuit Blanche, which is a big art celebration thing. We have started in Paris, hence the name. We have one in Toronto as well. And there's supposed to be all of these art installation things and sort of a carnival atmosphere. And so something was supposed to happen uh, at this Nuit Blanche that was wiped out by a storm entity. And so at this point, uh, obviously, the EU organization uh, that is involved in uh, dealing with uh, supernatural threats, which might be their local branch of the Ordo Veritatis, or uh, what would be in the, the Delta Green continuity? Well, there's not an
1: overarching EU authority, so this might either just be Delta Green running it with, you know, uh, local cutouts. You can imagine, for example, a community of Sri Lankan. famously, they're they're deep pearl divers. They can hold their breath a long time. Obviously, they've been fighting uh, the deep ones forever off the shores of Sri Lanka, and so in the same way that. You know, the CIA has their little deniable armies of of Kurds or Peruvians or whoever. Maybe Delta Green's got a team of Sri Lankan Deep One fighters that they, you know, keep in their hip pocket and they just fund out of the back of the black budget.
0: So we have a number of malign gods who could be responsible for storms of this sort. I think, uh, you know, Cthulhu and Ryla, he's known to throw up a wave or two. If we're talking literal uh, Deep Ones in this instance, that's, uh, that's Dagon, although we don't think of him primarily as a storm god. I'm also going to say that Ifakwa, who we think of as a winter storm god, well, that's just because we know, you know, he was originally encountered, at least by explorers who wrote in English, up north. So they thought, oh, well, this is the malign cosmic god of northern storms. But I I don't believe cosmic gods just limit themselves to one climactic zone on each planet. So Ifakwa could be known by different names as a a bringer of storms to Italy and to uh, Sri Lanka. So the, the scenario here is there's been one disastrous storm. There's been a second disastrous storm. Well, what do we know about disasters, Ken? Well, they come in threes. And they So do. the scenario here is to uh, work in cooperation with the uh, Sri Lankans or to play the Sri Lankan characters as they uh, work to prevent the final, you know, world-destroying storm from hitting, I don't know, Germany in 2004 and why do we not know in history that there was a big storm in Germany in 2004 because the player characters prevent it that's
1: why because our our Sri Lankan heroes stopped it that's why exactly
0: so the the handball team of course handball is just code for uh, mythos fighters or if you prefer in the esoteric outer dark fighters mm-hmm. and uh, it's been a while of course since 2004 so Maybe uh, whatever dread force it was, uh, the the cycles have continued, and it's it might be your job to go uh, in the present day and uh, track down the members of that team, either with their families in Italy to this day or back in Sri Lanka, and to uh, find out what to do now that it looks like the cycle is going to repeat itself.
1: Yeah, or it may be that the reason only half of them came back to Sri Lanka is that half gave their lives heroically, stopping Ithakwa or and or Dagon from... Destroying Germany in a storm, and that's why only half of them have come back, and the other half there's a cover story. They've got other Sri Lankans who are sort of uh, playing the role of them, keeping up the veil out, keeping up the the, the fake out. I, I think you could do an awful lot with this. I think this could also obviously be a a Knights nice Black Agents situation where you know you see that these storms are happening. Well, that's the sign of a great vampire rising up, and you've got to kill the vampire and the only way to do it is with the you know tooth of adam because vampires come from cain so you need something older than cain to stop a vampire the only thing that's older than that is the tooth of adam which is stored in that monastery at the very at the top of a mountain in sri lanka and they don't let it out just to anybody so you've got to you know set up a deal and work with uh the sri lankan religious authorities to get access to the tooth of adam so you can go stop that vampire and then it becomes not just a you're playing the Sri Lankan vampire hunting team that's going after uh, the King of the Vampires, but you're also doing an escort quest because you've got to make sure that that tooth, which you're bringing into a lot of vampire combat, gets back to Sri Lanka intact. You can't shoot it out of a gun. It would disintegrate. It's a 6,000-year-old tooth, Robin. So... It it becomes, you know, you've got an ultimate vampire killing thing, but you have to get really close and scratch him with it. You you can't just put it on a crossbow and hope. So that becomes sort of a a fun challenge.
0: Or could it be, could you put it in a handball? You could. It could be the the part of the whole team handball training is, is to train up an entire team of vampire hunters who, you know, each of the these little rubber balls, has a fragment of the tooth in it.
1: Right, or has been um, uh, bitten by the tooth. And so it's like the the reason they use a handball is they need something that the tooth can sink into, so it contains the rubber like mirror image of the bite of Adam, and so you hit him with that rubber mirror image, and that'll take him out. But, of course, you got to keep you know biting those handballs uh, because unless you hit him with the real tooth, it's not as powerful.
0: Right, so I guess it turns out that team handball is not just a stupid sport after all. And on that note, it's time for us to uh, head to yet another hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled... and six guns role playing game Western. How do you say "slap leather varmint" in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's
1: the best of Astvageln on drive through. Be the smartest mastermind of all by pitching in with such beloved Patreon backers as Drew Tucker, Phil Groff,
0: Liz Ansiski, Terry Robinson, and Lee Candelino.
1: Ah, the silver service, the beautiful wine bottles glinting in the candlelight, the smell of herbs uh, are apparently in an entirely different corner of the food hut because this hut smells like grease and uh, heat lamps.
0: And the ice cream machine is broken.
1: Right. Yeah, the ice cream machine is broken. And uh, a beloved Patreon backer, Derek Yates, didn't have a question about fine dining or oat cuisine, or did he? Because his question is about the macrib everyone loves the McRib. And uh, Derek's question is, is the McRib connected to the Mythos? And why not, right? I mean, not everything awful in the world is connected to the Mythos,
0: but Sure. (laughs) uh, Storms are, so obviously McRibs are too. Right.
1: And Derek uh, follows up by saying, there's no way this can be turned into a fall of Delta Green scenario, calling our attention to an NPR story, one of a category of stories that happens every time the McRib comes back, because, of course, that's literally the reason uh, that they do that, is to drive media. And NPR is just as sheep-like as all media. So it's an NPR story called uh, From Nebraska Lab to McDonald's. Donald's tray, the McRib's strange journey. And again, like all NPR stories, it leaves out most of the information you would actually need. But fortunately, Ken and Robin are on the job and have reassembled the story of the McRib. We've, We've restructured, restructured, if the you meat will. Of this story, <laughs> ah, such fun. So the story is that the McRib is one example, like the McNugget, of restructured meat technology and uh, restructured meat technology is the solution to the problem that animals
0: extra little bits of meat around once we're finished with the main bit animals come in
1: uh, odd shapes and with extrusions and parts that normally you don't want to eat like the inside of the stomach lining by
0: the way if if you're vegan i assume you've already scrubbed ahead to the next segment because this is about the McRib
1: yeah this does not get more vegan-friendly. Um, <laughs> so the, the the theory is, you take the bits of animal that don't fit. So in many cases, it's meat off the back or the uh, the shoulder. It's uh, it's the tripe out of the stomach. It's tongue. It's face. It's all that bit, and you whir it down into tiny little fragments. And those shavings or fragments are all put in a salt bath. And the salt extracts the proteins, and then the proteins connect each other and become a gl- uh, what is literally called in the original research a meat, glue. <laughs> mm, meat <laughs> glue. Meat glue. Emulsion is the more neutral term, maybe that you use. <laughs> it's um,
0: the one percent more appetizing term. Right.
1: And uh, then the meat glue, the emulsion, binds all of those shavings together, and you get a patty or a log of restructured meat and uh, this technology was invented at the natick army labs which were established in 1953 in natick massachusetts as the quartermaster r&d center restructured meat began the testing in 1958 it took about 10 years for them to get it how they liked it then it uh, enters field testing with the u.s army in 1976 and the um, meat patty the restructured meat patty uh, enters mre's Generally in 1981. And so, because this is American uh, government technology, it's not patented, which means yeah. anyone who wants to can use it for any kind of thing that they want. Yeah. So,
0: like the internet, it's a military project that is later repurposed to civilian ends. And right. like the internet, it is. Salty and uh, somewhat glue-like.
1: Right. Uh, It involves um, boiling everyone down in their salt bath. Uh, So the National Pork Council is worried that pork is losing out in the war of American fast food. And so they hire a University of Nebraska at Lincoln food scientist named Roger Mandigo, who's uh, worked at Natick Labs. They give him an $85,000 grant, and they say, invent a saleable pork patty. And uh, so Roger Mandigo goes in, and he takes the restructured meat technology, applies it to uh, pork shoulder in his case, and he builds a uh, a pork chop that is made out of restructured meat. Yes, so and thereby
0: performing the act that will later get him inducted into the meat industry Hall of Fame alongside Colonel Sanders and Dave Thomas. One one
1: hopes, by the way, that the uh, awards dinner there is good,
0: <laughs> and <laughs> right? that the trophy is like a an emulsified. Uh, meat log.
1: I, I feel like the trophy is always, you know, it's, it's like the Oscars. It exemplifies the ideal, not the actual. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's a statue of a turkey drumstick or something. But anyway, as this uh, technology gets out, at the same time, the McDonald's head chef, Rene uh born in Luxembourg, a trained cordon bleu chef who was cooked for kings, former head chef at the Drake Hotel and the Whitehall Hotel in Chicago... Now, the head chef at McDonald's is working with restructured meat technology. He works with chicken because he's trying to build the McNugget. He builds the McNugget, and they start testing McNuggets, and they realize very soon that there is not enough fragment chicken in the world to make all the McNuggets they need. So, they go back to Rene Arendt and say, can you do that with pork?
0: Right, because you don't lose as much chicken when you're breaking one down. Right. No, there's
1: uh, fewer bits of chicken to to get rid of. And so, um, uh, he says... Yep, and basically he makes the McRib in the same methodology, and he's the guy who comes up with making it look like a piece of boneless baby back rib, and I suppose that's a good goal, and he comes up with the idea of pickles and onions, and he invents the sauce. Yes, it's
0: like a skew-morphic meat patty. Exactly,
1: and you know, I don't want to say Renard end as a Luxembourgian war criminal, but you know, he's doing a job, he's like anybody else, and he did make the McNugget, which... You know, in better hands than McDonald's, turns into a perfectly tasty item. Uh, so good for you, Renee Arendt. Two cheers. But he also makes the McRib. And the McRib uh, is revealed with great fanfare in 1981 as a new menu item at McDonald's and runs into a couple of problems. One, nobody outside the Midwest much likes it.
0: Yep. Yeah, it's, it, they call it the McFlop. The it's McFlop. The, it's one of the big McDonald's product launches that at first, in high contrast to its, it's now mythical will of the wisp status. People didn't like and they, they, uh, they rejected it. They, they realized that a rib would normally have bones in it and were a little freaked out
1: and also would have a different mouthfeel. And again, once you've accepted the idea of I'm eating an extruded pork patty, I don't know that the McRib is any worse than anything, but it's certainly, if you're thinking you're eating a rib, that's not it. And weirdly, there's lots of great barbecue in the Midwest. I don't even know what our problem is, but there we are. So, it uh, gets canceled in 1985, and part of that is because they are driving up the price of pork shoulder. Um, it goes from about 80 cents per pound when bought in bulk to 90 cents, which sort of takes away some of the point of it. There's not an industry, for example, to shave up every other part of the pig except the chops, ribs, and bacon, so that has to grow up. There's just no way to source enough pork to make the McRib, and that's the other reason that it gets canceled. And then it returns in 1989, seasonally and regionally, meaning those chuds in the Midwest will eat it, (laughs) let's serve it to them, and then also it becomes a deal. As pork prices drop, McDonald's buys up a bunch of bulk pork backs, and then brings back the McRib, and when they bring back the McRib, they do it as a uh, fun, zesty PR opportunity, and they gull uh, terrible media like NPR into writing stories about it, and then it goes away again, because right. pork gets too expensive, and as I've mentioned before, it's terrible and no one likes it.
0: <laughs> one of its big runs as being a standard menu item is starts in 1994 when the Flintstones movie comes out, and there's a, a McDonald analog in the movie, and it remains on the menu for a while, so I guess that means Pork prices are are low in the uh, mid '90s. Now, the pork price argument, however, is just a theory insofar as McDonald's will not confirm that that is the case. And this is where things begin to seem mysterious and uh, suspicious. There's also, of course, the question of well, we make you want this by taking it off the menu, and therefore you know create a big you know PR opportunity every time we bring it back. That is. Weird, though, that uh, you would, you know, create an item and create a high demand for it and not offer it to people. That is peculiar. And so this brings us into, you know, what is really going on here and what leads us uh, now fall of Delta Green, maybe not due to the timing, but regular Delta Green could definitely involve this. Well,
1: Fall of Delta Green could get involved in the Natick Army Labs restructured meet technology testing that's happening during the 60s right so you could imagine for example a linked scenario that's one is fall of delta green and one is modern day delta green
0: yes or, and, or a sausage linked scenario right sausage
1: hello and, and um basically it's backward sausage <laughs> you chop up the meat and then you draw out the protein to build a casing Ugh. anyway the um the wonderful possibility is that Sure enough, someone in Natick, Massachusetts, and do I need to say Massachusetts any more times for this to be a Delta Green scenario, is introducing some sort of mythos goo into the meat bits to make them stick better. Right, because
0: Mandigo says about the shape of it is that we could shape products to shapes people wanted. Therefore, what are we talking about? We're talking about. Not just not a restructured meat, but a non-Euclidean meat product.
1: Right, and uh, whether it's a, a little bit of Shagath plasm or a little bit of uh, Shubnigurath Dark One sap, there's no shortage of gross things, gross exudates in the mythos that someone might. He's studying maybe, you know, Delta Green had a bunch of samples, and they sent them to Natick for their friendly in the uh, Quartermaster R&D Center to test, and they're testing it, and they're writing it all down, and then that guy goes to lunch, and the other guy comes in and says, oh, this looks like a cool colloid. I'll test it on the meat, and when it turns out to have wonderful properties of taking shapes people wanted or uh, binding meat together in mysterious gluey emulsion, then he says, well, this is great. I'm going to put this in, you know, builds it up in the in the centrifuge. And you as Delta Green uh, have to go in and stop because this early meat testing is going out to Vietnam and people are having wild ass shagath reactions to it. And it's like, well, we can't have that happen in Vietnam without us doing it on purpose.
0: Yes. The, the Dennis Hopper's wig out in uh, Apocalypse Now is actually meat emulsion based.
1: Exactly. It's, it's McRib Frenzy. And so they, they trace the, the MREs back to Natick Army Labs. They go, they find out, oh no, this is now part of the process. You basically have to sabotage the entire emulsified, uh, restructured meat process at some point between 58 and 68 and get all of the Shagath goo or all of the Shubnagurath sap out of it. And then the army has to basically figure out how to rebuild it, knowing it's possible, but they don't have the mythos goo anymore. And that's why it takes 10 years to make restructured meat technology. And then, of course, in the modern day, it's like, oh, it turns out not all of it got out. And in fact, it just moved from the army MREs into Fast food. And, uh, I think we've previously talked about a, an alternate version of, of White Castles. We could have an alternate version of McDonald's or go ahead and say, yeah, McDonald's, literally everything in McDonald's is tainted by Shubnagurath pus. Right. Good luck with that. I mean, don't, don't say that in public or someone will sue you or, but- or
0: at different times because, of course, we still haven't quite solved the mystery of its periodicity. And the answer, of course, is when does the McRib come back? When the stars are right. Uh So when the McRib is not on the menu, you know that uh, you're a little safer. Uh, And in fact, this may be why Delta Green allows this to continue. because Just the way that we measure resurgence from natural disasters in the South by when the Waffle Houses uh, reopen. Here, it's an easy way for everybody in the Mythos busting business to know that they can cancel their vacations when the McRib comes back. You know, that's just a, that's the modern version of the whippoorwills.
1: Right. That's the sign. That's the, yeah, that's the, you know, the the, the daffodils are up. It's time to get out there. Another possibility, of course, the extruded meat business, restructured meat is a gigantic multi-billion dollar business. Now the enormous agribusinesses that basically control all the food that you eat in America, they're all super rich. They're all super politically connected. They don't want to give up restructured meat technology, even if it has a little bit of shubnigger
0: right. sap in it. So- because if you think the McRib is, you know, a unique object of scorn, that actually a lot of the entree items in more mid-priced restaurant chains, you know, your TGI Fridays, your Applebee's, and so forth, follow the exact same formula. They are high in fat, salt, and sugar, and they are processed uh, within an inch of their lives. I- ironically. Uh, quite often they take actual you know good cuts of meat and then they pound the crap out of them in what are you know so, sort of purpose-built sort of laundry uh, you know if, if you imagine a dryer in a laundromat the factories that manufacture these food items are smashing chickens and cuts of beef and pork around in these uh, centrifuges to and the object is to have something that has a predigested. Quality to it. That's like you know the kids' menu food, except it's sold to adults. Because the whole object of you know they've done all these studies on what people like, and they kind of like stuff that tastes like it's already been half chewed already, and has yeah. <laughs> salt and fat and sugar in in huge high quantities.
1: Yeah, if it if it weren't a, a social faux pas, people would eat baby food. I mean, right. so, it's so designed
0: you, for people to like. Yeah, yeah. So so you may not have eaten a Mc, you may look down on the on the McRib, but if you go to these restaurants and order a lot of their sort of breaded meat items, you're just eating a glorified McRib, really.
1: Right, yeah. A uh, chicken finger, for example, is is never actually just a chicken breast that's been cut up and breaded. Chickens
0: don't actually have fingers, it turns
1: yeah, out. Yeah, they don't. It turns out. We've done the research. Yeah, so the, the larger point that I was making about um, the agribusinesses is that there's nothing Delta Green can do about it. It's too powerful. There's too much money, too much political influence. Without, you know, mounting a coup in uh, Nebraska – uh, They can't stop this. So Delta Green really does have to say, well, all right, everyone in America is getting just a little more Shubnagurithi or Shagathi every time the magrib comes back. It's a sign. It's not a good sign. But if you want a sort of a lowering atmosphere of doom, uh, that's certainly a good one. And then you can have a character, an NPC who's introduced. And he's like, oh, no, I, I only eat food I grow myself. And now it's like, well, does he know? <laughs> <laughs> what's going on and you know that of course can also be a creepy you know children of the corn fertility god type situation but either way you've established a a reason for the mythos to continue working and a response that you can have to it and then set it up as a uh, ongoing uh atmosphere of doom in a properly lovecraftian way so i feel like you know the existence of the mcrib like um you know the existence of you know, foreigners and jazz music to pick things that Lovecraft didn't like. You take something that's true of your society that can't get be gotten rid of, and you say, "Well, that's a that's a mythos spore," and that's how you build that sense of of cosmic surroundings. Do not do this with foreigners. You can do it with jazz music.
0: Yes, or or sandwiches. Yeah. Right. And on that note, I think it's time for us to. Uh, I didn't look into whether the McRib is currently available. So rather than have people go and stop and go and get McRibs. I think uh, let's have a nutritious next segment after this commercial. Exactly. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They
1: lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural.
0: By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes.
1: In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and
0: hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation. A
1: gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread.
0: Lover in the Ice. A bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread.
1: Sweetness. Vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos
0: danger. Hourglass. A woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione. Crazed words scrawled at a crime scene
1: hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea.
0: The Child. A traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color, 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tells us we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. as Of course, it's the conveyance that Ken's superiors... At time, Incorporated used to send them back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, uh, they've uh, once again been looking at their list of uh, horrible conflicts in history and uh, hoping to uh, do a little bit of humanitarian work and make things, you know, if not better, less terrible. And this time around, Ken, they want you to uh, see what you can do to uh, improve the 1822 Greek War of Independence. Where improved does not mean keeping Greece in the hands of the Ottomans.
1: Yeah, that would not be an improvement.
0: So, a uh, background in, in our history, first of all,
1: um, in our history, the Greek War of Independence basically begins thanks to a secret society called Filiki Eteria, and they are out organizing all kinds of areas of Greece. They begin to organize the Greek diaspora community, a group generally known as the Phanariots, and they also are working with area bandits, who are called the clefts, and are are encouraging them to go ahead and attack the Turkish overlord. And so, this sort of bubbles along during the Napoleonic Wars. There's uh, all manner of, you know, nationalism on the march in Europe, literally, and the, the Greeks want their share. And perhaps significantly, perhaps symbolically, the first blow of the Greek War of Independence, is struck by a, a Greek a Fenariot named Alexander Ypsilantis, and it's struck in Moldavia. <laughs> and uh, his response, uh, he declares the war in Moldavia, the idea being that he will, by starting a war in Moldavia, he'll draw the Russians in, and the Russians will just not stop until they've taken Constantinople, and that will uh, liberate the Greeks by accident. Fundamentally, it turns out, though, he is betrayed immediately by the Wallachians who were supposed to rise up with him and are like, uh, we don't want a Russian invasion. Thank you very much. We're in charge right now. And so he is then turned over to the Austrians and spends the rest of the war in prison. So that is Greek independence in a nutshell. Their independence day is 25th March in uh, the Julian calendar. And of course, that commemorates the actual first rebellion, which was on the 6th of March. So, welcome to Greece. That is basically how they run their revolution for the next seven years. There is a a bold orator who leads a rebellion. He is immediately betrayed. There is a lot of wrangling and infighting. And then he is tossed in the clink or killed by the Turks. And this happens over and over and over again, back and forth. A series of civil wars breaks out within the Greek uh, revolutionary movement, as often happens in revolutionary movements. And the Ottomans, however, have to call in the Egyptian army to put down the Greek uprising because the Ottomans are busy with a lot of other stuff, which we'll get to. The Egyptians show up, and once the Egyptians are in with a modern French-trained army, the European powers start saying, oh, no, this we don't want a modern European-trained army in the Balkans. We like the feckless Turkish army in the Balkans. And so the Russians are getting antsy. Oh, there's rebellions that we're not suppressing or helping, whichever it is we want to do. The British are worried about the Russians. The French are worried about the British. So the great powers all agree to send a naval squadron. Uh, The naval squadron shows up and sinks the Egyptian fleet at Navarino. And as a result, the Egyptian troops can't be supported. The Greek clefts The bandits uh, win, and basically a piece of exhaustion is forced on the Ottomans when, as indeed uh, was inevitable, the Russians do invade in 1829 and uh, once more uh, force the Ottomans at gunpoint to sign uh, the independence of Greece. The end.
0: So you have a chance to edit this (laughs) with your time machine. What do you do? And, And God knows editing is
1: what it needs because I have literally done the Highest level possible version of the Greek War of Independence. It gets very complex with lots of people, many of them Greek, taking
0: all <laughs> manner of sides. Yeah. So Time Incorporated has asked for you know fewer people killed, but even just simpler. While right. You're at yeah. It.
1: Just make it an explicable war. And and so I have got a series of interventions. I don't know that any one of these interventions does it, but I feel like doing them in sequence will lead to the thing that we actually want to happen. So, my first life that I will save is the life of a Persian prince, Muhammad Ali Mirza Dalat and he is the uh, older brother of the crown prince of Persia. And now you begin to get a sense of why the Qajar emperors of Persia were so nervous all the time. So, Muhammad Ali Mirza is in a state of constant, you know, friendly, one hopes, rivalry with his brother, the crown prince, and in 1821, they both invade Turkey. And Muhammad Ali Mirza goes up and starts to besiege Baghdad, and his brother defeats the Turks at Erzurum, and then he dies of cholera on uh, the way back from Baghdad. And Muhammad Ali Mirza Dalacha was a, a scientific mind, he was an excellent general, he was very popular, and he was the important reason that the Qajar emperor could give princes armies, because if he gives one to each prince, then... The Qajar emperor is not going to get one of those armies turned on him. But with only one prince, he can't keep fighting Turkey, so they make a peace in 1823. But you'll note that the Greek War of Independence begins in 1821, which is to say, while the entire Turkish army is off fighting the Persians. So if you keep Daulat Shah alive and you keep two armies in the field, both of them very capable of beating the Turks, then the emperor of Persia will continue the war because once he got to lose nothing. And so you will have the Turkish army almost entirely tied up on the Eastern front against the Persians, especially if Dalat Shah takes Baghdad as he very well might. So you wind up with a much better strategic situation for the Greeks. If virtually the entire Turkish army is, you know, literally on the other side of the empire as, as if to make up for letting Dalat Shah survive his cholera, I'm afraid that we have to arrange for Theodorus Kolokotronis, who is a uh, Greek general known as the old man of the Moria. He's the sort of super bandit chief who's welded the tribes of the Peloponnesus together to uh, fight the hated Ottoman uh, occupiers. And he defeats them soundly at a battle called Dervanachia in 1822. And he is a great hero a superb warrior and he is also the guy who causes the civil war. And by the civil war, I mean both civil wars. So if he's gone, the various tribes of the Moria don't have a leader to rally around and they get basically, I don't want to say shoved to the side, but they don't feel like they can win a civil war against the central Greek government. And even if they try, they don't have a great general leading them. So Calicatronus has to die heroically at Durvanakia, so that the Greek uh, Republic doesn't immediately come apart in civil war during its war of independence.
0: Now, we know that you don't go around murdering people in history, so how do you effectuate this? What that is, is you just, you know, tell a, uh, a the, the
1: Albanian snipers that uh, it turns out there is a way out of that canyon. The Albanians march into a canyon, Kolakotronis surprises them, and some of the Albanians then escape out of a different pass. So, you tell one bunch of Albanian snipers If you're up here, you can get to that escape pass, and uh, while you're there, see that guy in the plumed helmet? He's the reason your buddies are all getting massacred, just saying. So, so
0: you're not killing a guy, you're saving some Albanian snipers.
1: And also the Greeks from the other half of the Civil War, yes. Right. And it's a shame, because he's actually probably in the right. I've mentioned the Phanariots, the uh, overseas Greeks, the westernized Greeks. I've mentioned the the, Clefts, the bandit chiefs who become the generals. Well, the third party is, is the rich guys, the magnates. And these are the powerful landowners on land or the powerful fishing fleet owners on the islands. And they're the third leg of the Greek independent stool. And without a powerful country party to overbalance them, they win. And you know, people who are rich under Ottoman occupation, probably not morally pure, but there we are. they are the people who are getting Greece started so, what are you going to do? But, as if to make up for killing Colocodronus, I'm saving a different cleft, a guy named Marcos Botsaris, and there's a battle called Carpenese, where he runs a bunch of tribes in Epirus, which is the part of Greece just south of Albania, um, and he ambushes just a huge Ottoman army, like five times his size, and he takes his his men, called the Suliotes, and just charges them from off of a hill, and the Ottomans are dumbfounded by this. They have no idea what's happening. They get massacred, and Botsaris sadly dies in the battle because, as I mentioned, he's outnumbered five to one. Well, it turns out Botsaris is the guy who, almost alone of the clefts, was on good terms with the Phanariots, the overseas Greeks, and especially with one Philhellene, as they were called, Western Grecophiles, named Lord Byron. And Botsaris is the guy who wrote to Byron and said, hey, you're a big fan of freedom. We're getting some freedom on here in Greece. Why don't you come check it out? And Byron and Botsaris became pen pals. But Botsaris sadly dies before Byron gets to Greece. But if he doesn't die, then Byron has a military force at his back and vast quantities of his own money and access to British banks. And that is, of course, the thing that you really need to uh, win a war is someone else's money. So, Byron is my fourth hinge. We'll get him to survive his fever. He dies of fever at Missalongi. He never actually gets to take part in uh, the war. Uh, that's simple because his boat gets lost sailing from Cephalonia to Missolonghi. You just unlose his boat and get it to arrive at the same time as the cannons. I also might remind his cannon guy, hey, pack coal. There's not going to be any coal when you land. Uh, you're not going to be able to, I don't know, run any of your furnaces. So, with coal and no losing Byron, he doesn't waste a lot of time getting fever in the swamps of Missalonghi. He sets out on his campaign with Marcos Bozzaris, who, as I mentioned, is honest and trustworthy, as well as being a brave and excellent general. So, between Bozaris and Byron, we are now in a situation without Calacatronas, There is not a civil war happening. There is a trickle of British funds that is going to get more and more massive. Byron survives to put uh, the funds in the charge of his own bankers, not in charge of the Greek rich guys who, of course, embezzled all of the loan funding. And the British bankers, the British nobles who ran the fund the second time, well, they embezzled it instead. So (laughs) Byron, however... You know, he's got to have bankers he can trust, so he puts them in charge of the of the Greek loan. And, of course, he's writing poetry and doing journalism and getting more and more Hellenes to uh, recruit. So, he's sort of, in our history, there was about 300 Westerners who came and fought for Greece, including a couple of Americans. Obviously, with Byron, you know, pumping out the propaganda, there's going to be even more of them. And many of them, because the Napoleonic Wars have just been over, will have actual military experience. Now, a thing that happened in our timeline that I want to make sure that happened is uh, an explosion in Constantinople at a spot called the Tofan, which is where uh, the Turks kept all of their cannons and their cannon foundry and most of their small arms. And it's a giant arsenal that was guarded by the Janissaries, and it blew up in 1823, and that's one of the other reasons the Ottomans were short of all the necessary equipment to put down this relatively ragtag rebellion as all of their weapons blew up and they had to buy new weapons or basically uh, hat in hand to the egyptians and beg them to come bail them out you want to make sure that explosion happens the ottomans blamed it on the greeks the the phanariots in constantinople um, they'd already hung the patriarch by the way who literally preached sermons saying don't rebel against the ottomans Someone might get hanged, and then he got <laughs> hanged. So, it shows you, shows you what good collaborators are. Some Serling-esque irony right there. Right there. And so, the Tofan explosion might have been done by the Janissaries, who are the elite soldier corps of the Ottoman Empire, but are becoming too big of a political power. The uh, Sultan Murad is going to purge them in three years, and maybe they got wind of it and said, well, let's see how good you do without your guns, and blew it up. So, whatever happens, I want to make sure the Tofan explosion does happen, because that's one of the things that if it doesn't happen, the Ottomans can maybe win this on their own, even with the Persian War. And then the last intervention is simply to keep the Egyptians out of the war. The the Ottomans, as I say, go to Muhammad Ali, Pasha, the Pasha of Egypt. They've already used him to conquer Arabia and to conquer the Sudan, and he's getting a taste for it. He likes having a bigger empire. He starts saying... So why am I paying you if I'm doing all the conquering? And the Ottomans say, well, you promised. And so far that holds. So they beg him to come intervene in the war. And he invades Crete and Cyprus, both of which have got rebellions, and puts them down. And it is at this point that the Ottomans say, great, but we kind of needed you in actual Greece. And Muhammad Ali says, well, I'll do that if you'll give me Syria. And the Ottomans sort of stick at that for a little while. And then realize they don't have a better option and say, all right, you can have Syria. And he goes and he invades Greece. But the intervention would be if a plausible rogue shows up at Muhammad Ali's court and says, you know, the entire Ottoman army is off fighting Persia their guns all blew up. If you wanted Syria, you could just take Syria. You don't need anyone's permission.
0: Yeah. Because Syria tastes much better if you take it for yourself.
1: Exactly. If it, if you have all of Syria and not just part of Syria, and you could also take lesser Armenia, which is just right there on top of Syria. And there's a bunch of people who are not super fond of the Ottomans in it. So just a thought, just an idea. And Muhammad Ali went back and forth in our history over whether or not he was going to intervene in the Greek civil war. And, even at, when he did intervene, he kept having second thoughts and, you know, sort of back He sent his son up to run the war and he kept back sassing him and sending him, you know, notes on the war. Oh, you're doing it wrong. Oh, no, I need those troops. Bring them back and sort of interfered in a way. And I feel like Muhammad Ali Pasha, he was just inches away from rebelling against the Ottomans in our history. I feel like if you get him to instead of invade Greece, take that same army and fight the generally much less tough Ottomans, since he has the only good army in the, in the uh, Turkey by now, I feel like he w- he might go for that. And so if you have no civil war, you have British money, and then by this time you'll have British ships, but they're being sailed by Greeks. You have Muhammad Ali not intervening in Greece, and you have a reliable cleft general who can somewhat play the role of Kolokatronis and counterbalance the magnates, the rich guys. You have, I think, as close to a perfect storm as you can get for Greece to be a republic. They don't have to be a monarchy. They only were a monarchy to make the Europeans happy. Byron would never have put up with that foolishness. They could stay a republic. They can probably not do a lot better in terms of the peace settlement than they did in 1832 in our history, but they'll have, you know, earned it themselves. Maybe they take Thessaly or Macedonia. Maybe they take more of a Pyrus because... Our guy, Butsaris is around, but by and large, it's not going to be the whole stretch of Greece that we know of now. And it's not going to include Crete or Cyprus because the Egyptians have those. But, you know, the Egyptians had those in our history too until the British came and took them away in 1878. So that's just the way the world works. But you get a, a Greek Republic. You get no, you know, no civil wars in the middle of the revolution. You get the, uh, the Ottomans well and truly distracted. And maybe Muhammad Ali is able to build a powerful independent Egypt. And so he doesn't leave a crippled state to his descendants who then lose it fecklessly to the British. So, I mean, his descendants are still going to be feckless probably, but you know, they start with more money. So they lose less of it, I guess is my hope.
0: Right. They they begin with more feck in the bank.
1: Exactly. Bigger, bigger amounts of feck. So even at a standard rate of feck dispersal, they uh, they wind up able to build their own canal and not have to sell it to the British and therefore turn their country over to them.
0: So approximately how many lives have you saved by rearranging all these things? Well, you know, in terms of lives, Robin, you, you
1: sort of have to hope that you're doing well. The, the total casualties of the Greek Civil War, excuse me, of the Greek Revolution, are probably in the neighborhood of a couple of hundred thousand. I figure with this... I've cut that at least in half because I, none of the deaths in the Civil War happened and none of the deaths in the Egyptian invasion happened. The Egyptians, by the way, were not nice. They uh, practiced what was called the barbarization policy, which was basically ethnic cleansing, but on steroids. Um This was before they had steroids, so I don't even know what they were on. And that Egyptian invasion and the brutality of it is finally what got Britain to go in And once Britain goes in, then Russia goes in and then France goes in. So the brutality of it also inspires the Russians to send their own armies. So the, uh, you, you save a lot of civilian deaths from the campaigns of the Egyptians. And, you know, obviously you save a lot of Egyptian lives because they're not fighting hard to fight Greeks. They're fighting gunless Ottomans and are, are doing considerably better. So I feel like You know, I've probably killed some random larger number of Turks on the Eastern Front because the Persian War continues. So in terms of the net calculus, maybe it's about the same, but fewer of them are Greeks. And that was, in fact, the brief.
0: Well, once we've completed the brief, I believe uh, the rule is we've completed the episode, uh, but we'll be back next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Dream. Door Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com
1: backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Make sure this podcast remains constant not intermittent like a certain sandwich we could name, by joining such backers as Luke Steyer, Andrew Dacey, Volpine, Derek Yates, and Taylor Harless. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Enjoy such classics as Walrus Revenge.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.